What happens when you put two experts behind mics to match wits on the current state of financial services, the economy, investments, and more? From the American College of Financial Services, this is Wealth Managed. Welcome to Wealth Managed. I'm Michael Finca. I'm a professor of wealth management at the American College. I'm David Blanchett, head of retirement research at PGM. We're here today with Ross Riskin. Ross is an associate professor of taxation at the college and also an expert in student loans. And this is a topic that's been in the news. We've obviously seen a lot of interest in existing student loans among those who have borrowed a lot of money. What is unusual about student loans? Take us from the very beginning. What do we need to know? How is it different than getting a mortgage or another type of loan? And, and what are some of the options that parents and children can think about when it comes to leveraging themselves up to get that very valuable education? Thanks for having me, guys. And that's a great question and a loaded question. It's interesting in the fact that you're really dealing with two different parties on the borrowing side of things, right? You have a student who is going to be attending school who could also be the borrower. And then you also have parents who are likely going to be paying for some, if not all of the education. And they have options to actually borrow for college as well. I mean, it's interesting in the fact that there are options for student borrowers where they can actually borrow money without demonstrating any ability that they're going to be able to repay the debt. They're not looking at their credit score, their credit history when figuring that out. But a lot of that is to actually provide access to education, right? We don't want a system in place where, you know, you can only go if you've already proven you can repay the debt, or you can only get education if you have that, right? It's kind of the chicken or the egg, what comes first there, or they're providing that access to that type of financing. And the way the student loans work, at least through the federal government, is we have this direct loan program, these Stafford loans that are fixed rate loans. They're tying their interest rate to the 10-year treasury note plus a percentage. And students are able to borrow these. But a couple of things to keep in mind is that there are borrowing limits in place under the system for undergraduate students. So a lot of things we see in the news are crazy six-figure loan debt and things. But the reality is that's not representative of the majority of borrowers, and it's certainly not representing undergraduate students. It may start to if undergraduate students then explore private loan options, especially if they're maybe attending schools that are very expensive, they're not getting support from their parents, and they're limited overall to you know borrowing around $27,000 as an undergraduate student, but they have basically access to loans at lower interest rates. Now, when it comes to the other side with, well, what about parents who want to borrow? Well, the most popular option for them is going to be the PLUS loan, right? It sounds good. PLUS must be positive, must be great, but that's actually not the case at all. There are a lot of issues with that. And that loan was originally designed to provide access for families who maybe don't have strong credit. They don't have you know, enough resources to pay for college. We don't want to price them out of the market. But when you figure out, well, how much can a student borrow for loans? I said before, they're limited, right? So a freshman can borrow $5,500 in a direct loan. What can a parent borrow that same year? There really is no limit. The limit is essentially set by the school. It's actually the cost of attendance minus any aid they've received. So you could have parents that are filling out those financial aid forms with their kids. They apply to school that costs $60,000 a year. They maybe make too much money. They don't qualify for any aid or going to receive any aid. That parent can go borrow $60,000 through a PLUS loan, right? So that's kind of part of that problem. It's the same limits in place for graduate students looking to borrow through the PLUS loan system as well. So that's kind of some differences there where there really is this lack of vetting the borrower on the, on the front end, but it's really different from other debt when you think about the back end, the repayment side of things. 
right? So we know, like, we kind of refer to something as, uh, you know, you mentioned a mortgage, right? A mortgage is kind of a, you know, kind of fixed rate loan where you're, you know, you're making payments over 30 years, or maybe you're making over 15 years. Well, student loans, you know, the standard repayment for them for the federal loans is going to be 10 years, but you have options, you actually have access to IDR plans or income driven repayment plans. So your repayment can actually be tied to your ability to repay. And that is going to be directly tied to your income and, you know, the poverty level for your household size and some other factors that go in depending on what type of income driven repayment plan you're on. So you have a different type of debt where the payment can change every year. It could change even during the year, right? If you had somebody who, you know, if they lose their job during the middle of the year and their income goes down, well, their payment can get adjusted. That may not be the case with a private loan or, you know, mortgage relief, obviously outside of the, outside of the pandemic of having widespread economic relief like that. But it's just a little different on the repayment side of things compared to conventional loans. And that also ties into, well, how do you go about approaching debt? Like, what's the debt management strategy? And so we know there are a lot of different ones, right? You kind of have like the snowball, the avalanche, you kind of have all those different things, pay down the highest interest rate first. But the other unique characteristic with this type of debt is this idea and this concept of loan forgiveness, right? This idea that, hey, if I'm on a certain repayment plan for a certain period of time and I meet certain requirements... I may not have to pay the whole thing back. Well, that actually changes the strategy of what loans do I even borrow in the first place? What repayment plan am I on? Are there things I need to consider if I get married? Does tax filing status affect my payment and my repayment strategy? So you have these other things there where the obvious advice of pay down debt as quickly as possible may actually not be the best advice if you are working with someone who's going to qualify for loan forgiveness, especially if they're going to qualify for tax-free loan forgiveness. So Ross, you know, I, I've seen a lot of stories online recently, especially talking about certain colleges and certain parents that have these, you know, tons and tons of plus loans. Two quick things. One, are plus loans eligible for the income-based repayment? And then two, I thought for, as it existed currently with the income-based repayment, the amount that is not due eventually, that is forgiven, it's still considered taxable income though in the year that it's forgiven. Can you address both those points for me? Sure, Absolutely. So, you know, first off, when it comes to parent loans, okay, what are they, what's available to them? So I'm just going to back up from there real quick. So that is one of the issues with these loans is that there's limited barriers to get these loans, right? You don't have to, you know, it's basically, as long as you don't have an adverse credit history, they're not directly even looking at like a FICO score or anything like that. So as long as you don't have that issue, you can borrow. How much can you borrow? Could be a ton. But then when it comes to, well, okay, now what are my repayment options? They're limited. So it's, it's restricted on the back end. So really the only income-driven repayment plan you can participate in is known as ICR, which is Income Contingent Repayment Plan. So it's the least favorable. It's basically taking 20% of your discretionary income. Discretionary income is basically taking your AGI minus the poverty guideline for your family size, 100% of that. But that calculation differs, right? You have a couple other plans like Pays You Earn that's taking 10% instead of 20%. And it's subtracting 150%. So your discretionary income gets smaller under that, therefore your payment gets smaller. So they still are able to participate in that type of plan if they consolidate those loans into a direct consolidation loan, they can participate in ICR. There is another workaround. It's kind of known as the double consolidation strategy where there is this way where parent plus loan borrowers can get onto those other 
income driven or payment plans, but it involves them taking out multiple plus loans, consolidating at different lenders, then they consolidate that again. It's like you got to do multiple consolidations, very complicated strategy, but there kind of is a workaround, but it shouldn't be that way. Like you shouldn't have to jump through that many hoops, especially if you're putting families in a position where they can easily borrow way more than they can ever afford to repay. Now, the second thing you mentioned is key, right, of this this idea of forgiveness. Now, the the golden goose has always been public service loan forgiveness, right? It's I say golden goose in the sense that it's the thing everybody wants, but also the thing that no one ever really sees. It sounds like student loans, there's much better income-driven repayment plans. There's the public service forgiveness. It sounds like for the parent plus loans, there's this one kind of like income-based system that's not nearly as generous. There is no 10-year forgiveness. And so it just sounds like it's just a sea of difference in terms of the kind of the, I don't want to use the word quality of the loan programs, but the considerations you've got to make in terms of taking one versus the other, right? Absolutely. So that's correct. And I think the other element there that's often, it's thought about by borrowers and advisors, but it's not thought about correctly is if you think about if someone's comparing loan options, what's one of the biggest factors people are going to look at? Interest rate, right? That usually is what people come down to. So A lot of people may look and say, oh, look, a parent plus loan is, I'm just going to make up 6%. And this private loan I was offered is 6.25%. I'm obviously going to go with the lower plus loan. I mean, granted, you do have some benefits with plus loans. I mean, if the parent passes away or becomes totally incapacitated or the student on whose behalf was borrowed passes away or becomes totally incapacitated, the loan is forgiven there as well. So there are some favorable death and disability discharge provisions with federal loans, but most private lenders are mirroring that as well. So that's not as big of a differentiator anymore. But here's the other thing that most people aren't factoring in if they're looking at an interest rate comparison is that there are very high origination fees with a plus loan. So they're over 4%. So the reality is you're not comparing apples to apples. So it's really not a 6% plus loan versus a 6.25%. Depending on what repayment term you're factoring in there, that plus loan is likely more expensive than the 6.25%. Why why is it 4%? Like that just seems nuts. Yeah, it is crazy. It's that high, but that is maybe help compensate for the fact that whether you're high top of the end credit tier or your bottom you're basically getting the same loan, right? So there's there's no ability to actually offer more favorable rates for more creditworthy borrowers. So they're basically absorbing that cost and that risk in a larger origination fee across the board. So, and that's something that parents don't get. And it can be done two ways. You can either, right? I mean, you borrow, let's say something crazy example, right? Let's say you borrow hundred grand for the year. You're either gonna get $96,000 because they take the origination fee off the top and you're only getting 96, but you're repaying 100. So now you have also a cash flow problem if you needed 100, or you're borrowing the 104 right off the top to net to 100, and then you're repaying the 104, right? So that leads to another cash flow problem. But the reality is it's not apples to apples. I mean, what is it? Truth in Lending Act requires. APR rates to be displayed for all private loans. So most private student loans don't have any origination fees, but if they did, they would be incorporating an APR rate. The federal plus loan does not do that. They do not display that information. So people can't really make an apples to apples comparison, which is an issue. Now's a good time to take a break. We'll be right back. Give your clients the retirement security they need with our retirement income certified professional designation. Visit the americancollege.edu slash RICP to learn more. 
Learn how a goal-based approach redefines 21st century investment with our Wealth Management Certified Professional designation. Bring your value to a new level at theamericancollege.edu slash WMCP. So Ross, if I'm a financial planner, I've got a range of different clients. Obviously, most of my clients are going to be higher income. They're going to be more well off. They're going to have traditional situations with their kid. They want to provide a little bit of support to their kid, but they may also have a certain amount of their own liquidity. They may have the ability to borrow using other sources of equity. Talk me through the process stage by stage. What are the questions that you ask to determine whether a loan is appropriate? And if it is appropriate, which one is most attractive for the client? So there's no necessarily right or wrong way to do it. I think number one is trying to get a sense of what is the client's aversion for debt and does it actually carry on with what they want for their kids? So like one of the things I like to try and tease out is I like to ask the question, trying to figure out, you know, is the ultimate goal of the family to spend the least amount possible for the best education? Or is their driving goal to make sure that their kids graduate with no debt? And so they, they kind of sound like the same thing, but there are different things because a lot of people will measure success as my kid graduates no debt, but you spent four times as much maybe as, as the next family where the kid has some debt. So it's, did you really win? So it's, it's teasing that out to figure out like what is the ultimate goal? When it comes to evaluating different options, I mean, Federal student loans made to students are always going to be your best bet because they're going to be the lowest interest rate loans. Also, if you're a family that maybe demonstrates financial need, you could qualify for a portion of those loans could be subsidized. So the government's paying interest on those loans while you're enrolled in school. The other benefit is look at what just happened with the pandemic, right? If you had federal loans, you benefited from no interest accrual, payment suspension, also wage garnishment suspension. If you were, you know, you owed the debt before and you weren't making payments on time. Those are afforded to federal loan borrowers, right? Like you're not getting that with private lenders or private loans. So that's one thing to keep in mind. However, that's not necessarily across the board when it comes to all federal loans. So now if you're a parent looking at options, you may think the plus loan is best, but when you actually look at the true cost of the loan, factor in, you don't really have the same options on the repayment side of things. And maybe we're in an extremely low interest rate environment, which remember, the federal loans are fixed loans. So they're basically using the last 10-year treasury auction in May, then adding a percentage. But if interest rates tank, you're still locked into that loan, whereas it maybe makes sense to get a private loan where you're, you can get a new lower rate. So a, a lot of them depends on that of kind of what are the preferences for debt? We know the loans made to students, the federal loans, lower rates, have better benefits, also afford many options when it comes to repayment. You also have the potential for forgiveness and tax-free loan forgiveness. So, uh, you know, David alluded to that before. It's like public service loan forgiveness has always been golden goose because it's only 10 years of payments and it's tax-free. Well, now, at least through 2025, all forgiveness is actually tax-free. So even those working towards forgiveness on income-based repayment, pay-as-you-earn, revised pay, it's all tax-free. That's something I would keep an eye on is that will likely get extended permanently past 2025 because the reality is no one is saving for a lump sum tax bill on five, six, seven hundred thousand dollars of debt coming due over the next 25 years. Nobody is ready for that. We have all these things out there where we hear some people want to eliminate forgiveness. Some people want to eliminate loans. We're likely going to fall somewhere in the middle and have provisions that make all the forgiveness actually tax free, maybe expand different income driven repayment plans. But, you know, the other thing that comes to mind is this idea of categorizing clients on the student loan side of things, right? Like if you have a client who they have, you know, low interest rate federal loans, they're working towards forgiveness, 
they shouldn't be refinancing those loans, right? Even if rates drop, because if they're counting towards forgiveness, it makes sense to stay on that path. Make sure you're doing anything possible to qualify for forgiveness. Make sure your payments are actually counting. But that's what you want to do. If you have somebody who has private loans that they previously borrowed in past years that are higher interest rate loans, now is probably a good time to refinance those loans because you're saving on the interest that you pay over time. But the tricky thing comes into play is if you have someone who has federal loans, but they're higher interest rate loans. Now you're kind of, you have to weigh the pros and cons. Well, do I refinance and get a lower rate private loan? Well, yeah, that maybe makes sense. If you're not going to qualify for forgiveness, maybe your income is over the threshold where you're not counting on that. You're not benefiting from it. But then you maybe miss out on widespread economic relief, where if something happens in the future where payments get suspended, that's not going to necessarily apply to you. As a private loan borrower, that wouldn't apply. For a finance guy, I think that's a really fascinating aspect because you've got these federal student loans where, I mean, there's a lot of political pressure right now to forgive a big chunk of those loans. If that happens, then anybody who's holding those loans essentially gets a windfall in terms mm. of how much their lifetime wealth has just increased. And you don't get that windfall if you borrow privately. So it's almost like you're holding an, a, a debt that also has an option that's associated with it that only triggers if there is a very specific political event. That's crazy. That's crazy. But it's got to be part of your calculations, doesn't it? It does. And think about that, right? So with knowing that, or at least thinking like that, if you're a high income or high net worth individual and you have enough saved, why would you pay everything out of pocket? Like, like, you know, why not hedge a part of that, especially if let's say you have a son or daughter who wants to work in public service loan forgiveness. So they want to pursue a less lucrative career path. We know that we know of people have, you know, whether you're self-built, whether you, you made your money as like a white collar worker or whatever, like kids don't always follow the same paths as their parents. And maybe if they're provided with everything, they can be more flexible in pursuing something that's just not lucrative. If that's the case, if you have $300,000 saved, do you want to spend all three? Or are you better off if that student actually maybe borrows some of that money, takes on the financial responsibility, can work towards forgiving some of that debt in the future tax-free. And then on the side, that 300, you can actually preserve some of that and grow it. So later on when they have other life events where they need money for a house or marriage or something else, you're able to actually do that. So this topic touches everybody. I don't care how old you are, what net worth level, what income level, everybody has concerns about it. I mean, the perfect example of that is why did we have an admission scandal, right? We're talking about people who have enough money that it doesn't, you know, like they're successful, but why are they still concerned? Because people still care where their kids go to school and they still think if I go to this school, I'm going to build a network and I'm going to get out and I'm going to have a job and opportunities. But the reality is even people who have enough money have concerns on education and we need to get creative as advisors when thinking about solutions and factoring, hey, if there are programs that can have debt forgiven for you and you take on some financial responsibility and I can still preserve that, then you also don't have the secondary issue that comes of parents later on or kind of, you know, you have, there are situations like that where parents will spend a ton of money and the kid maybe doesn't even finish school. I mean, that's something people don't even realize, like the six-year graduation rate is 50%. So it's the majority of people don't even graduate in four years. So you could have that thing where you spent a lot of money and you have debt and maybe you drop down, you don't even have a degree. So not only do you have a student struggling with that there, but then you have parents that are like, I spent all that money. <laughs> you know, what did I get for? What's the ROI there? And that kind of leads into this conversation of parents are way more focused on ROI right now. And at least the good news is we're getting more data and it's becoming more available about how do you measure ROI, your investment in education. 
You know, this is where I'm going to push back on David a little bit, because I know he's going to have to pay for college education for his kids. He's also a very analytic minded person. He has a certain amount of liquidity. He has borrowing capability. You know, he's listening to stuff like this. Well, at 4% origination rate, you are going to have to pay a market interest rate plus some kind of a spread. You know, if you're investing in bonds at the same time that you're earning 2% and you're paying back student loans where you have to pay a 4% origination fee, plus there may be like a 1% or 2% spread above what you're getting on your bond investments, at what point do you question whether or not to get a student loan as opposed to trying to self-fund a college education? And you, David, what, how are you thinking about this? I, I, I really want to know. Well, so my wife and I had significant student loans upon completing our education. So I think that our perspective might be different than others. I mean, I've been fortunate in that I do pretty well. I was able to pay off our student loans, but I don't think that we want to saddle our kids with incredibly aggressive student loans should they choose to go to not only a, a decent four-year school, but graduate school is what got both of us. And so I do plan on, you know, I, I hope to have at least the amount saved to go to a, a state school for them when they go to school. But then beyond that, I do want to do some risk sharing because I, I do believe that if you just tell someone, hey, I'll pay for you to any four school you want, they're going to go to a, a crappy out-of-state public school. And there's just no benefit there. And so I, you know, I, I do plan on saving some, but I also want to do some risk sharing just in terms of undergrad and graduate, because I know younger friends that were going to go to law school, their parents are like, well, then you have to pay for it. And they didn't go. And so I think one of the things that does worry me is a perspective among some individuals that, oh, I'll just keep going to school if I don't even want to pay for it. So I, I definitely plan to self-fund a good portion, do some risk sharing, possibly help them with repayment if it goes well. But I think that to me is just a concern among a lot of people is, is giving their kids a, a free pass at an education, yeah. which, which I want my kids to go to school, but we have decent in-state schools. It's not worth paying a bunch of money to go somewhere else that you know doesn't have that much higher quality of education. No, that's a great insight, David. I think that's shared by a lot of people, right? That's a common thing of like, we'll help with maybe the cost of a state school for all four years of undergrad and then grad school, you're on your own. But the concept of the risk sharing is, is key. And so before getting to that, I think one thing I'll say is there is no right or wrong answer. I think that's the thing we kind of forget about in advisors. We sometimes want to impose our beliefs on the client. They just come out, right? Especially if you're talking to someone that's like, no, my kid can go wherever they want. I've encountered that. Kid's not good in school. The family has serious financial issues. Like I've had people, I've seen people with back taxes. They have nothing in their retirement plan, but the daughter wants to go to an out-of-state public school to study art. And she's like not good at school, doesn't know what she wants to do, but her friends are going there and it's going to be like 50 grand a year because they don't qualify for anything. And we have to kind of coach those people to make better, <laughs> make better decisions by showing them, hey, here's what your outcomes are if you do that. You know, forget the ROI. That would be the equivalent of investing so much in your daughter who has already proven to this point that she doesn't really care about school. She doesn't really know what she wants to do. So it kind of comes back to an investment thing, but there's no right or wrong answer. We just need to make sure everyone's on the same page, right? So that, hey, if that's your philosophy as a parent or what I want to do, my kids know that too. And if there are grandparents involved that want to help pay, they know what's going on because that's the issue that comes up is that you see in situations where like parents are borrowing money and then they have this expectation that the kids are going to repay. And the kids are like, wait, I didn't know I was going to have to pay for that. Or I didn't really understand the concept of borrowing and having to repay. And then you have a grandparent over here that wants to be kind of the silent hero and like write a check to the school. But what they don't understand is that the family would have qualified for aid, but because the grandparent makes a payment to school, now you don't because they count that back as a resource and reduce your aid, you would have gotten the form. So everyone's got to be on the same page with it. But the risk sharing is really interesting. So like Sally made as a study every year, it's, it's 
a study of, I think, around a thousand families. It's how America pays for college. And so they're asking these questions. And so it dives deeper into something that's really interesting, not just among like, oh, what's the average borrowing of students and the average borrowing of parents? But they're asking, what are your thoughts on payment responsibility, right? And it's kind of clear that, hey, loans that students borrow, both are pretty much in agreement that the student's going to repay that. But when we actually look at loans that parents borrow on behalf of students, there actually is this big expectation that the students are going to repay that. So in a sense, these plus loans can actually act as disguised student debt. So looking at average student loan figures is not taking into consideration what parents are borrowing, even though in reality, they may be thinking about that. So that's just another way to think about the risk sharing and just repayment responsibility. And that's I don't know about you guys. That's something that I don't, I don't think is thought about in the same way, right? If somebody goes and buys a house and they have a mortgage, you know, maybe there's a parent involved that's maybe helping with a down payment or something like that. But it's probably pretty much understood that the, the adult children buying the house are the ones responsible and they know they're going to be paying for that mortgage. This is kind of that pseudo disguised debt in a sense. What parent is going to deny their children? You know, this is part of, I think the part of the education planning process is you've got to deal with all this emotional stuff that's associated with funding a kid's education. Nobody wants to deny their children. They want to be able to brag to their friends about the quality of the school that their kids are going to. So you as a financial advisor, you've got to also deal with this emotional stuff that's going on that could derail a lot of other financial goals for the family. How do you get them back down to earth? Think about like, what is the process that a financial planner can use to really get to the fundamentals of whether this education planning makes sense? Part of the answer is a lot of what you're talking about. Yeah, parents may feel that way, but the good news is a lot of students aren't. So we're, we're seeing generational shifts with Gen Z and people that are actually becoming more pragmatic and realizing, you know, I don't want to borrow that much money. I can actually, there's more transparency out there in what am I really getting for going to school? And like, wait, it's online. I'm doing that right now. And it kind of sucks. <laughs> so like, you know, there, there's more transparency and awareness there. So it makes the conversations easier, but they're only easier for having them. So as an advisor, you need to involve the child in it, right? So it, it, it can no longer be this, one-to-one of, I'm just talking to the parent. No, it needs to be more comprehensive and holistic planning. And so I like to think about it in two ways of, you have kind of table stakes planning or conventional planning. This is stuff that all advisors need to be doing, right? It kind of starts out with, okay, how much do we save for college? So we're doing our time value money calculations. We're looking at what does school cost today? What's it going to cost in the future? Assuming inflation rates, you know, investment returns. Then we figure out, okay, when it comes time to actually apply for financial aid, apply to schools, what are the aid distribution policies of schools, right? Are we we're applying to state schools, out-of-state schools, schools that meet a good percentage of need? Then once we get award letters back, we're reviewing those and figuring out, okay, we don't have enough saved already. How do we fund the gap? Is it the student taking a loan? Is it the parent taking a loan? That's the normal thing we should all be doing. The sad thing is a lot of advisors don't do that, or they're, they're only doing maybe bits and pieces of that, but that's just basic. Comprehensive planners need to do that. But then here's deeper dive planning of that you need to start thinking about as an advisor. You need to figure out how does the student learn best? Does the family value the education element more or do they value the experience element more, right? So these are things that are that have come up as a result of the pandemic where we know families don't want to spend three and four grand for an online class in philosophy, right? So we know people want to spend eight to $1,200 roughly for an online three credit undergraduate course, which means if you're a school who has not adjusted pricing, how are you delivering value for the other two thirds of the cost? right? But you need to have a conversation with the family because you, you're going to encounter families who say, you know what? I just want my son or daughter to go to the state school, get a STEM degree, get out, get a job, move on. Then you're going to have other people that say, 
I met my wife at college. I met my best friends at college. I had the best four years of my life were Animal House. I know it's seven years with the, <laughs> with the references there, but it's like, it's not right or wrong, but we need to be on the same page to understand what the expectation is. I know one question I've always put out there and asked, and everyone's always looked at me like I was crazy when I asked this before, but I always ask, are you worried about institutional viability? Like how does the family or the student, how do they value the alumni connection? right? Because over the next five years, we're going to see a lot of closures, a lot of mergers of schools. So how would you feel if you were the last graduating class of that school and there's no one coming after you? Does that even matter? Do you even care about that? What if you go to a school that financially it's fine, but the major that you're going to study in gets discontinued because there's no students, right? So and gets closed up. Now you got to transfer to a new major, you transfer to a new school. Are you planning for that five-year plan instead of the four-year plan you thought? So there's all these other variables that even as advisors, even if you don't know the answers to these things, you need to be asking the questions because these are things that parents are starting to think about. So if you can say, you know, I noticed when you come into meetings, you tell me about your son. And this is the most repeated statement I've, I've ever heard is my son's really smart, really smart. He's just not a good test taker. That's the most common repeated phrase I've ever heard. But if they also tell you, yeah, he's, he's, you know, he has trouble, he has trouble focusing on things. He's probably ADD. He needs this. Okay. Well, if the dream school of his, he's going to be going to in the fall just went online or just went hybrid. And they're telling you the delivery looks like, oh, you just pop in, you know, once a week, there's no actual structure. That's probably not going to be a great learning experience for you. And now you're going to question, what am I paying? Why am I paying for this? That doesn't align with the learning style. And so everything's kind of in upheaval about it. So it's just having those conversations because right now it's not about having the answers. It's about listening and being able to ask those questions or show your, your thinking about those questions with your clients. And at the end of the day, that's the best form of longevity insurance for your practice because you're actually showing an interest in the next generation. So you're increasing the likelihood of retaining them as a client for future generational planning. So David, that's what our parents said about us, didn't they? Well, they, that he's bad test taker, <laughs> got a good personality, right? <laughs> well, Ross, thank you for joining us today. And by the way, for those of you who haven't taken the CHFC yet, this topic and a lot of specialized planning topics are available. Even if you have a CFP, for example, you can take a one course, the 347 course that has a lot of these advanced specialized planning topics. Look for it at the American College. Ross, thank you for joining us on today's episode. Michael, David, thank you for having me. If you guys are looking for other great content, be sure to check out another podcast from the college called Next Gen in 10, where we cover some other exciting topics related to Next Gen advisors. Thanks, everyone. I'm Michael Finca. And I'm David Blanchett. See you all later. For more episodes and shows, visit theamericancollege.edu slash podcasts. Wealth Managed is a production of the American College of Financial Services. 